Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People Power Politics Podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us today. I'm delighted to say that we'll be talking to Rita Abrahamson, who is the professor in the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Ottawa and is well known for her important book, Disciplining Democracy, Development Discourses and Good Governance in Africa. Welcome, Rita. Thank you, Nick. It's wonderful to be here. Now, today we're talking about a rather different topic from that influential book. We're talking about your work on the military and explicitly what you call militarism. I think a series of really prescient publications over the last few years have talked about what in some places you describe as a kind of feel-good militarism that has come about because of a fusion of things like security and development and is really quite different from the kinds of militarism we might have seen in the past. And I think this is a really timely moment to revisit those insights because, of course, we've just had a coup in Niger. That's followed on from coups in a number of other countries, Burkina Faso, Mali, Guinea, Sudan, and a real debate, I think, within Africa and also beyond about the appropriate role of the military in politics. And one of the things that's really struck me as someone who spent much of my life working on democracy in Africa is the number of people either, you know, on the ground waving flags and apparently celebrating the coup or in the wider international community who seem to be much more willing to think that coups and military rule might be a good thing. Whereas previously, five, 10 years ago, I think we would have generally had a consensus that it was a bad thing. So I think it's a great time to revisit those articles, which I think in some ways anticipated this recent spate of events. But to start with, I think it would be really useful for us all just to start with that concept. So what do you mean when you say militarism? I think when most people hear the concept militarism, they just think about hardware. They think about weapons, tanks, all the kind of material signs of of a military presence in a society. And that's a crucial part of it. But there's much more to the concept of militarism than just military hardware. So one brief definition would be that it has to do with the preparation for war and the normalization and legitimation of the preparation for war. But there is this crucial ideational, ideological element to it. There's a sort of almost glorification of the military and military values. And this idea and acceptance that military solutions to civilian problems is acceptable. Or if we were to give an example from non-African settings, I'm a distance runner. And since I moved to Canada, one of the runs I've taken part in almost every year. It's a military run, a half marathon. And when you finish that, you get a medal that is like the military tank, right? Completely innocent. But one of the things it does is to put military values and the presence of military into our everyday lives of distance running and say, hey, militaries are part of our societies. And I think that is a much more subtle way of thinking about militarism that when we come to thinking and talking about what's happening presently in Africa, we need to take with us. It's this normalization and acceptance of it. So it's a kind of softening, in a way, of the image of the military. And the military isn't this scary thing with the guns. It's a nice thing that everyone can participate in. I think that's a really interesting insight. One other thing that I've noticed a little bit is the idea that the military might be more efficient is coming back. Mm -hmm. And I think that's combined with this in a certain way at the minute. So perhaps we had this in African countries, maybe in the 70s, where you have a period of unstable 
stable civilian rule, then there's an idea that, well, maybe the military isn't so bad because they'll beat the best organized trade union. They'll overcome the ethnic tensions within a country. They'll be organized, disciplined, hierarchical and efficient. They'll get stuff done. So they'll reduce corruption, but they'll also deliver more. And what we learned in the 70s and 80s is that this is actually not true, that the military becomes riven of all the same issues, corruption, ethnicity, patronage as the wider state, that it doesn't necessarily deliver. It doesn't perform very well economically, but what you do get is more human rights violations. So I think what's really interesting for me, having studied that period, the 80s and 90s, and the overthrow of military rule and the rise of multi-party democracy in Africa, is your work as a reminder that somehow the image of militaries is being rehabilitated. So it'd be really interesting to talk through how has that happened over the last sort of 10, 20 years? What have been the drivers that have led to us reimagining the military from the way we might have done 20 years ago? I think there are obviously very many different reasons why the military has been rehabilitated. But one important aspect of this, I think, is the focus within development policies and external actors after the terrorist attacks of 9-11. We could go further back, but there is a crucial change that takes place after 9-11, when international actors and African actors become increasingly more preoccupied with international security. And what happens at this point is that there is both a kind of focus on retraining militaries, making them more respectful of human rights, turning them into barbarian rational actors that will support state building. But there is also a focus on training them to be more effective, more efficient in combating terror. And of course, this coincides with a period in time where Western actors do not want to sacrifice their own soldiers in these conflict rights. So we then have to, we being Western donors and actors have to train efficient militaries to do this for us, to maintain international stability. African actors have an active interest also in providing security. And this is the crucial point. If we are just training militaries to become more effective, more efficient, and shoot in a straight line, but not being equally successful in instilling respect for human rights, civilian oversight, and so forth, we end up in a situation potentially where military Trees become strong actors and stronger actors vis-a-vis -vis civilian actors, vis-a-vis -vis elected representatives and so forth. And their entry or re-entry into politics can then be facilitated by this relationship. That's clearly something that we need to worry about. One of the things that's been pointed out in recent years is that some of those who have led coups, not all of them, but some of them have been in the kind of training programs that you're talking about, which raises really serious questions about whether or not it's feasible to really train people, especially in relatively short periods of time, to have things like respect for civilian law and to be clean, to respect good governance principles and so on. Do you think that a lot of those training programs are to an extent trying to achieve the impossible? Is there something there about almost conning ourselves into the extent to which you can tame military actors by passing on norms and giving education sessions when people are in the middle of a political crisis or as in recent cases where their own military interests have perhaps been challenged by a government that might be looking to rotate military leaders. In the heat of that moment, their interests are always going to win out over those broader principles. Or do you think that we do see some evidence that that training can be successful? 
I think it can potentially be successful, but there's no doubt that this kind of training is resisted. Nobody, the military included, state leaders, don't really want that kind of interference in what they regard as their sovereign domain. So it's much easier to train people and train soldiers to fight, to shoot, <laughs> to do military operations. That is much, much easier. Those technical forms of training is much easier than much more long-term, difficult job of changing mentalities, changing the way we think. And what has happened with the forms of security assistance over the years is that in the beginning, there was much more emphasis on human rights, good governance, respect for civilians. And that side of training has receded to the background and the technical aspects and the hardware aspects have come to the forefront. So my argument, and I would be careful, I mean, what the current situation in Niger and so forth, what it, it really raises serious questions about the success of external military training. And what we can say for sure is that an awful lot of military training does not equal better democracy and better human rights. We've seen an increase in terrorist attacks across the Sahel, despite this immense amount of resources going in to stop it. But that doesn't mean, in my opinion, that we can draw a direct causal link to say that this is what causes the military coups. There are many more intervening variables there, but it does and it should absolutely lead us to ask very careful questions about how this type of assistance can be done and should be done. Now, one of the things that you talked a lot about in your own words, is the role of development in this. And we haven't talked too much about development. In fact, one of your articles, the title is Defensive Development, Combative Contradictions. So what role has development and the idea that the military can be an important actor in development played in shaping the processes that we've started to talk about? It's very interesting. One of the people who's written a lot about this, Andrew Basevich, calls it a kind of feel-good militarism, where what we've seen is that in the past, the people and the agencies and actors that promoted militarism were military actors and departments of defense. And what we've seen in more recent years, all these do-gooders, development actors, humanitarian actors that have the biggest cheerleaders for military intervention, for military solutions. And what has happened within development discourse and development policies is that we have had a kind of reinterpretation of the values within development, that we have this slogan that everyone knows, there can be no security without development and no development without security. And that rehabilitates military solutions. And we can then provide development assistance to military and security actors in the name of humanitarianism, development, democracy. And I think that has been incredibly important in getting to the situation where we are now, where democracy is, as you've written as a lot about, Nick, democracy is this um, concept that legitimizes any political action because it's inevitably a good thing, right? So if it's democratic, it's got to be good. So if we can have security interventions, support for security actors in the name of peace and democracy, then who are we to oppose it? So it kind of legitimates it. Now, one of the things that we've both worked on a lot over the last 20 years is, is African politics. In fact, we first came to know each other editing the journal African Affairs a few years ago. Um, so what would be interesting maybe to think about is, is how is this different in Africa to elsewhere? You know, some of the things you've talked about are very general global trends post 9-11 
seven shifts in how we've thought about the military, the need to be able to train and have militaries operate that aren't necessarily Western militaries and therefore almost proxy kind of militaries doing work in other countries. A lot of those are global. Of course, some of these factors are also perhaps particularly present and more significant in what, you know, historically have been called underdeveloped countries in terms of the desire to rapidly develop and perhaps a sense that somehow the military might be able to play a role there. Is there anything distinctively African about the narrative you, for example, describe in your papers? I ask that, of course, because the vast majority of coups since 1990 have been in Africa. A lot of the coups that we've talked about recently, we named a lot of the countries at the top of the show, but in just the last five years, you would say Zimbabwe, Chad, uh, Sudan, Burkina Faso, Mali, Guinea, Niger, in some of those countries, not just one coup, but two. Is there anything distinctive about these trends in the way that they play out in the African context? I think it's slightly different. So one of my arguments has been that a coup or a military situation will always be specific to each country. But I think we can't get away from talking about the legacy of the colonial period. The way in which militaries in most African countries, if not all African countries, were, were institutions that were set up originally to defend the colonial power and the colonial regime. So they were focused on regime security, not citizen security. And the continuing sort of effort post-independence to turn militaries towards institutions that support broad-based democratic development has been a continual struggle, right? So, so you see militaries continuing to be externally oriented, sometimes elite-driven or externally separated from the rest of society. So I think one of the crucial historical and sociological elements of this would be in each of the countries where we've seen a rise of militarism and a return of the military coup is to go back and look at how militaries have colonial origins, how they've struggled, and there's been a struggle between the state to control military force. From a militaristic perspective, what is the relationship between the state and its military force? And that, I think, is profoundly conditioned by a colonial past. One of the things that might be interesting to move on to now is to think a little bit about what this recent perhaps spate of coups means. And one of the things that we've seen is an interesting intersection between another aspect of your work and something that you're interested in and the rise of the coups, which is, of course, that a lot of these leaders have responded to taking power or used as a justification to take power as explicitly anti-French position. And in some cases seem to have explicitly then moved towards a pro-Russian position, shifting it might seem, at least, you know, rhetorically, the geopolitical balance within parts of Western Central Africa. And that, of course, has now sent Western actors into a spin, perhaps particularly those who don't know much about Africa and don't really understand the extent to which this is a broader trend or a localized trend. What do you think really explains the confluence of coups and this kind of geopolitical switch? Because it is noticeable how many of them have followed it. Is it a little bit of political theatre? The anti-France thing is something that's genuinely felt by many citizens. So it's easy for military leaders to play this card to whip up support behind what many might see as a legitimate power grab. Or is this really something more deep-seated in a sense within the military regimes that there's something here about Russia and about the role of France that they have been upset about for a long period of time? And this is actually a genuine grievance on behalf of the military itself. 
think it's both of those things. If I were a military person and I was confronted with the failure to tackle a rise in violence, I would look for somebody else to blame but myself. So who would I blame? I would blame the French because you know it's going to find a fertile ground. You know that people are going to say, yes, let's blame the French for anything we can. I think that's a convenient scapegoat, not saying that the French have done a brilliant job in the Sahel, but nevertheless, it is a convenient scapegoat. So I think that's definitely part of the explanation. I think the other thing is, for military leaders, it could be quite tempting to turn to Russia and to Wagner, because they don't ask any questions. They don't say, please be nice and respect human rights. Please be nice and listen to your democratically elected leaders. They are happy to provide military hardware. They are happy to support them regardless. So that could well be a tempting direction for, for, for many of these military leaders. And I think I've been toying with the idea of thinking about this in terms of a kind of competitive militarism. You have Western actors that are happy to train militaries. And now we have other actors, most recently Wagner and Russia, that are also happy to do that. So you kind of get almost a competitive situation of competitive military And if you are a military leader, you can turn either way, play both of them and strengthen yourself, right? Strengthen your own power. And what really concerns me is that the people who lose out here are ordinary people that live in these countries, the populations, and civilian, democratically elected and democratically inclined politicians. I think one of the other things that's really interesting is that, of course, if Wagner are willing to send you mercenaries, again, it takes us back to that point you made earlier. Yeah, that it's quite attractive to the military to have someone else come and do their fighting because of course it's someone else coming and doing the dying and taking on mm-hmm. the risk and therefore if you are struggling in a conflict and Wagner is willing to send mercenaries your way there are other people you can put on the front line that doesn't have to be you so I, I can see that attraction as well I think one of the things I wonder moving forwards is that at least from my not particularly well informed you know viewpoint it doesn't seem to me that Russia or Wagner has anywhere near the capacity to do the job these militaries acquire and, you know, if we zoom out a minute and I'll ask you, you know, to reflect on this in just a second. One of the things we know is that the backdrop to a lot of these coups has been rising insecurity in the countries concerned. You talked about this earlier. We have insurgent groups. We have rising criminality. We have cross-border networks of criminality and violence that the states that we're talking about by and large have really struggled to control. Ironically, of course, Niger is said to be one of the countries that's done mm-hmm. slightly better on this front. But in general, these are governments that have really struggled and military have often used that insecurity as a legitimating device in terms of explaining why they've taken over power. But if you've got a Russian government that doesn't have that much money to spend, is struggling to assert itself in Ukraine in its own immediate theatre, and you've got Wagner, which, you know, it doesn't have that many troops, and you've got to deal with an area the size of the Sahel, this is not going to be a long-term solution to security. And so one of the things that I wonder whether we'll see going forwards is relatively quickly what appears to be in some countries high levels of public support support for aspects of the junta, aspects of, you know, the relationship to Russia eroding fairly rapidly and leading to people being more frustrated and more upset and more angry than they were before and a deterioration in the security situation. And that then putting real pressure on military leaders in terms of whether or not they're going to hold on to power. And of course, one of the critical backdrops to that is that we know that in most countries in Africa, people want elected governments. So there's a sort of default in most countries that, well, we might be willing to tolerate the military now because the last government was so bad, but in principle, we want to return to elected government. And I remember, you know, a nice moment in a BBC interview with someone on the streets in Mali who was celebrating the coup. And the BBC said to 
answer him something like, you know, how are you out here? And he says, well, this is a victory for the Malian people. It's been a terrible government. It's great to have them removed. This is a real opportunity for progress. And then they said, so you're, you're looking forward to the military rule. And the person said, oh, no, the military cannot govern. They need to go quickly. It's just they're there as a correction for us to get another government that can do a better job as a democracy. And so I guess my question to you is, first of all, how do you see security having played in here? And do you see any option for these coups to improvement in security in the region? And if not, what's the actual situation going to be like facing these military leaders in two or three years' time? It seems at the minute that they don't really want to hand over power to civilians. Most of the time, we've seen hunters try and delay that process, and yet might be quite challenging for them to retain power. The idea that they're the military so it will be easier for them historically proved to be false in Africa. So perhaps this doesn't even solve the challenge of political instability. I think you're absolutely right. I think they not have any more chance of solving the security problem than what came before. In fact, I think they will have less. They may do it more brutally with the help of Wagner and without external assistance, but I don't think they're going to have any more chance of solving the immense security problems in the region. And, you know, what we might be looking at is, as you say, more instability. It's quite common for one military ruler to be overturned by another. So we might be looking at a succession of coups as we've seen already in Mali. And it's quite depressing and disturbing because it's hard to point to whenever I do interviews like this, I would try to find something positive and optimistic to say. But looking at this situation, it's very hard to see much of a a light at the end of the tunnel or a positive solution to it. At the moment, all of us are kind of hoping that ECOWAS can put some more pressure on the hunters and get them to change their mind. But they seem to be all digging down, wanting to stay on. And so far, it's been difficult for anyone to get them to say what normally crew leaders say after a while is that, yes, you know, we are just here as caretakers. We will hand over in period of time to democratically elected leaders because they know, as you said, that most populations may not be willing to live for a very long time under military rule. But at the moment, we don't see much sign of that across the Sahel in these countries. I think, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think we you have these kind of moments of rhetorical kind of compromise where they might hint at this or in order to get sanctions lifted, they might pledge something. But then you very quickly see them digging their heels in, not making any progress towards, you know, the sorts of things you would want to see in terms of transition, You maybe a new constitution, strengthening the electoral commission. All of those kinds of things don't happen. And instead you see censorship, repression of the opposition and so on, all of which, of course, are things you wouldn't expect to see if you were genuinely genuinely leading up to, to free and fair multi-party elections. And it reminds me of the really good work of Sebastian Elisha on this, who has done some nice work on what happens when, you know, the military take power and say that they're going to, to transfer it into a civilian regime. And he finds that, you know, in over 50% of cases, the military tries to subvert the transition so they maintain control. In other words, they either try and rig the elections or they try and stand their own candidate to prevent transfer of power away from them. And of course, that's something that people have noted in recent years in relation to these coups. Alex Thurston has a nice piece on Niger in which he notes that one of the motivations for the coup was the worry of military leaders that they would be removed from positions of patronage. And of course, if that's one of the main reasons you have a coup, which is you don't want to lose your job and the perks and the money that it generates, why would you agree to transfer power to the hands of civilians? Because the first thing they're probably going to do is remove you from your position because you were a coup leader and you're a threat to them. And then you are going to be on your own without the money and the income and the resources you've enjoyed 
enjoyed previously. So I think that question of how you return the military to barracks and how you persuade them to allow civilian rule to be re-established is unfortunately going to be one of the dominant questions the next 10 years in these parts of West Africa. And I think that's it's a real shame that we've ended up back there, right? Because that was the key question in the late 1980s in many of these countries as well. But I think, you know, final question, people might be interested to hear you talk a little bit about what role then does the international community play? We saw, for example, a suggestion that France might play a role in supporting ECOWAS troops in terms of invading militarily Niger. ECOWAS is, of course, the economic community of West African states, the regional economic and military body in West Africa. Some people have seen the idea of a military intervention as, you know, potentially disastrous. Not only does it involve ECOWAS in a military expedition in a country where there's significant risk that the military and the people would seek to resist that intervention and would see that as an imperial intervention. But of course, if it was supported by France, that would play into the narratives the military hunter are saying, which is that France is trying to undermine their sovereignty. And so it would potentially strengthen them rather than weaken them. So if the idea of a kind of military intervention from ECOWAS backed by France isn't a good option, are there any good options for how international community can engage with the hunters in terms of persuading them to move back towards civilian rule? Just before I answer that question, I just wanted to add something to what you were saying earlier as well, because we've spoken a lot about the coups. But one important part of talking about militarism is also the ways in which military actors can acquire positions of power without conducting a coup. And you hinted at some of the work earlier that has been done by others, which is really important in this regard. And when I wrote the article called Return of the Generals in 2018, I was a bit worried that I was being too pessimistic. So I put a question mark, Return of the Generals question mark. But one of the things I'm saying and trying to show there is that it may not be necessary in these conditions of militarism to have the military coup. Instead, you can exert power through alliances, through pressure, by virtue of becoming a military institution that is a broker between the national and the international. So it's not only the coup and also post-coup, you will possibly see that military and other security actors occupy all these positions that previously were civilian positions. So we've seen in, in a lot of African countries, for example, generals, military generals become chief of police, right? A kind of militarization of the police. So militarism works not only or not even primarily through the military coup, which we've talked a lot about because it's so prescient at the moment, but also through these other mechanisms. And we could look at countries like Uganda, for example, as a very good example of precisely that. To your question about solutions and what international actors can do, at the moment, I think not a great deal. I think supporting ECOWAS, but we also know, as you said, military intervention with ECOWAS at this moment in time is probably not a good idea. Probably also at the moment doesn't look like it's going to happen. So forms of diplomacy, forms of pressure, forms of sanctions, I think it is a really tricky situation. And I don't really see very many good options other than for international actors to liaise and align themselves behind organizations and actors on the African continent that could exercise 
pressure from within. So ECOWAS, the African Union, I think at the moment, in order not to further allow actors in these countries to drum up anti-Westernism. So it's not only anti-French sentiments at the moment, but there are also an increase in some kind of anti-Western sentiments where we hear leaders saying that these are forms of neo-colonialism, forms of neo-imperialism, which I don't totally disagree with, but they become populist discourses, right? They become those populist discourses that allow domestic leaders off the hook. And I think it is a tricky time for both France and other Western countries like the US, Britain, because putting too much pressure on overtly, putting ourselves up as wonderful, virtuous democracies, which these countries are not themselves, risk just feeding further populist resentment. And as we know, Russia and Russian leaders are very quick these days to jump on those kinds of discourses and narrative to further increase the geopolitical struggle. The worst place for Africa to be, in my opinion, is caught between actors in that superpower rivalry that echoes the Cold War. But there are many times in the last few months when I felt we are back there. And and this is not a good place for African countries to find themselves. And I think everyone has to tread very carefully in a careful balancing act, which is why I come back to the need to try to the extent that we can as external actors to support African actors, continental actors that put the force on on democracy and, and return to civilian rule. Absolutely. And I wonder, you know, whether in a few years' time we'll reflect back and we'll see that the governments played the international community, you know, most effectively in terms of getting what they need are the ones who didn't pick a side, you know, who who kept relations with both East and West, who dealt with Russia and China, but sustained relations with France, UK and America, and therefore were able to, you know, basically secure a wide range of support and assistance. The ones who really burn their bridges with one side in favour of the other are likely to find that that results in less resources is less access and less influence and actually isn't the way really to play the game. You know, it strikes me that countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, South Africa are playing the game much more effectively in terms of resisting those international pressures whilst getting what they can out of the international community than a hunter that basically tears up its relationship with a number of countries in favour of reliance on perhaps one country that's pretty unstable and pretty unreliable in Russia. And whether or not, you know, a lot of people are celebrating that as a reassertion of sovereignty, a reassertion of anti-imperialism and you that as you say that's understandable given the history of colonialism and the extent of french continued involvement and some would say meddling in its colonies ever since but nonetheless what's most effective is working collectively with a number of actors simultaneously and that can be done in a way that doesn't exclude anyone and i think that you know will be quite interesting to see in a few years time who's been able to get the most benefits of the international community and it will probably not be these military regimes Final thought, you know, Rita, in terms of, you know, moving forwards, how does this change the way that we think about the militaries for people like us back home in in the UK and Canada, in the United States? Are we seeing a significant rebranding and reshaping of them in the people's minds? Is this significant in any way in terms of, you know, the way that the military plays out in our own countries in terms of things like military budgets, the kinds of roles that we expect the military to be able to play? And has that shifted in the last, you know, 10, 20 years as well? Is is that something that's happening in, you know, the countries of many 
any of the people who'll be listening to us today? I think absolutely militarism has increased in almost all parts of the world. It's definitely increased in our parts of the world. I mean, I'm based in Canada at the moment. If we look at North America, Canada and the US, but also Europe, militarism is on the rise, both in terms of hardware, military spending, but also in terms of our attitudes to the military. And, you know, what we spoke a little bit about earlier, the way in which military actors and other security actors I've, I've worked on on private security in the past, right? Private security actors, military actors become development actors. They become do-gooders, right? And they have become that in many people's eyes. So I think it has very big consequences and, and poses very serious questions about how we think about the role of militaries and the role of military force in our own countries and in our own foreign policy. And oftentimes I think these are questions that citizens don't think about, but we probably should spend a lot more time interrogating policies of our own countries alongside those of of others or the recipients of, of military assistance. Thanks so much, Rita. Well, I think we've had a great discussion today. We've talked about, you know, what is militarism, the rise of a different form of militarism, of feel-good militarism, the danger potentially of that, of giving militaries a greater seat at the table, the impact of that, as you've explained, both through coups, but perhaps also more surreptitiously, subtly um, through militarization of other forms of government without coups, and the potential implications of that, you know, for security development, not just in places like Niger, but also in our own countries. So I think we've provided people with an awful lot of food for thought. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work that we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description. Thank you.